The Accidental Engineer. Welcome all, Max of The Accidental Engineer here. Today, I am pleased to be joined by Josh Burkus. Welcome, Josh. Howdy. It's great to have you. For audience members that are curious, Josh has a very colorful background coming to software and databases. Uh, one might even say accidental. Yes. <laughs> uh, so for our audience members that are curious about your background, Josh, take it away. Sure. Time to trot out my graybeard credentials. So I got involved in open source in the mid-90s. And for folks listening to this who are younger than I am, one thing that might not be clear on is when I went to college, computer science was a focus in the math department. It wasn't even its own study. And I wasn't that into math. So I had the weird experience of working in the university, being paid to work in the university computer lab on the VAX cluster there, while at the same time getting a degree in fine art. Our audience members may well not know what VAX means. <laughs> oh, so it was an early, it was an early Unix system, mm -hmm. particularly heavily used within academia because it was set up with time sharing mm -hmm. uh, built in. Um, and time sharing was the idea that it would splice different workloads and run them separately on its single processor without the operator, which was me needing to manually do that. Mm -hmm. um, I could just set percentages. I mean, the funny thing about now being in the world of containers and stuff is effectively we've just brought time sharing back only on a much larger scale. For audience members that might not know, uh, Josh went to Pitzer College down mm -hmm. in Southern California, next door to my own alma mater, Claremont McKenna College. Yep. Neither school, uh, I mean, both schools being liberal arts colleges, but neither school actually having their own computer science departments, period. Um, no. Even when I went there more recently than Josh, there was no computer science department at either school. If you wanted to major in computer science, you had to go and major through one of the neighboring liberal arts colleges like Harvey Mudd or Pomona. But Josh, I, I know after college, you you didn't immediately pursue software engineering. You didn't use your skills. Oh, no, 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 no. Because no. look, yeah. I graduated with a degree in ceramics, uh, ceramic sculpture. And so I wasn't really sure what to do after that. I didn't want to go to graduate school because due to my work in the university computer lab and a little bit of inherited money from a grandparent, I graduated from college debt-free. So I wasn't exactly eager to go substantially into debt for a graduate degree in the arts that would still not get me a job. So instead, I used my sculpture skills, and I actually got a job as a pastry chef. Um, no kidding. The, um, yeah, at a caterer. Well, I mean, it's sort of it's natural going from clay to, to dough. It's, it's a very similar experience, right? You take something that's soft and sticky, and you put it in the oven. I mean, yeah. I like that. I enjoyed that a lot. The pay was pretty bad, though, and the hours were terrible. My day started at 3 every day. But if people check out my online presence and you see references to Fuzzy Chef or other things that kind of dates from that, um, because I still have a lot of friends in the culinary industry from that period. People, um, not, people not familiar with baking, is that 3 p.m. or 3 a.m.? Important. Oh, it's 3 a.m. It's 3 a.m. <laughs> yep. I, you know, 3 a.m. every day. I did not know we had this uh, common experience because yeah. my first job out of college, similarly, was yeah. a graveyard ship, a gra graveyard shift type of role. 
uh, I was working in Chicago to European business hours mm-hmm. and I would take public transit so, <laughs> so early in the morning, similar to you. And for audience members that might not appreciate besides compensation aside, what lifestyle was it to have that job and to, to have that lifestyle of 3 a.m. starts? Yeah, so it was always weird. The thing is, I never really adjusted to it. And this is something I learned later on. It's affected me now where I'm working in open source and I have to collaborate with a lot of people who are in other time zones is that I have to carefully manage my own early morning and late hours because I discovered my body really didn't adjust to needing to have this kind of split sleep schedule. Because what would happen is I would go to bed at 9 p.m. and then I would get up for my work shift. And then when I got home, I would take a nap. But I was honestly, during the two and a half years or so, I was a pastry chef. I think I was probably sick more often than I've ever been in my life. I never really adjusted to it. And that's still true now, right? Like, I do because I have to, you know, collaborate with people who are in Eastern Europe. I end up having to get up at 530 in the morning. And I try to limit those days because I discover that if I have to get up at 530 in the morning, have two hours of conference calls after that, that's it for me for the day. I'm going to be completely unproductive for the rest of the day. Totally. Other folks are more flexible. Um, but yeah, but so that was that was hard. But it had to be that early because I was in Los Angeles. And by lunchtime, you couldn't we didn't open the walk in because we didn't want stuff to get damaged. That, that is a far cry from uh, database engineering and what you're up to today at Red Hat. So do you mind painting a picture of how you transitioned on from being a pastry chef to... Yeah, it wasn't... So I did a bunch of things. So um, uh, I decided to quit my job down in LA and move up to the Bay Area because I'd visited friends in the Bay Area for Pride and for other things. Um, and really fell in love with the area um, and decided I wanted to move to San Francisco. Um, I knocked around from a number of jobs up here, um, including, and this ended up taking me back out of San Francisco to the Central Valley, including being a, um, a labor organizer for United Farm Workers for a year, um, which, by the way, was terrific prep for being an open source project leader. <laughs> we're gonna have to yeah. hear the details on that because yeah. people might, might not appreciate those parallels quite yet so I, I mean the biggest parallel is you have to motivate a whole bunch of people to do stuff together um without being able to command their paychecks right um and and sometimes very tedious unpleasant stuff or scary stuff um the um so and that has never not been a useful skill um since then the um and um and some legal support work which i would say is probably the only um job career thing i did not enjoy Mm -hmm. like like the only thing where if if money lifestyle etc was not an issue i would still not go back to any of the other things that i did labor organizer um so i left the legal services thing became a professional fundraiser um, where I was able to also put my labor organizing skills to good use uh, for the San Francisco Opera. Um, but they had a special thing, which was they had this terrible, unusable database for donor management. 
And since I had computer skills, um, they changed my job. So I was spending half my time raising money. Theoretically, I was spending half my time raising money and half my time writing a new donor database um, using, um, at the time, the original release of Microsoft Access um, with Visual Fox Pro on the back end. Um, the, um, and um, um, that transitioned to a bunch of other things. Um, as you might imagine for other jobs, each of those half-time jobs was actually full-time. So I was really working two full-time jobs. The um, And that was very useful because I got to learn. I'd actually learned a little bit more about databases in the past because, like, for example, I did some very simple tracking databases in Foxborough for uh, UFW um, the, um, uh, for keeping track of our members and that sort of thing. Um, so, but it really got me into it. And so when I decided to leave the opera, partly because, you know, working overtime plus for very little money, um, the, um, I, I decided to go into freelancing, um, in database development, um, and also in Linux system administration, because the other thing that had happened was um, during the course of this, um, I had met um, a geek who had introduced me to Linux as an alternative to Windows, which is where all my experience had been before then. Um, and so I tried out Linux. I liked it a lot as a server thing. I was like, hey, there's this open source operating system. I wonder if there's an open source database out there. Um, because at this point, I was into the whole Microsoft stack, Complus, SQL Server, et cetera, et cetera, um, and couldn't um, try out my SQL. My SQL at that point didn't even support joins between tables, so I didn't consider it a real database. Talking 97 here. So um, found this thing called Postgres, which actually was a lot more solid from database principles, but had other problems. Um, you know, and so I got the, the fun start of, you know, saying, hey, um, I got this sort of running. I found this issue um, where Postgres is not doing the right thing. What do I do? And immediately Tom Lane, who had just started in as a committer to Postgres at the time, um, emailed me back and was like, you're right. That's a bug try this patch and see if it fixes it. And I'm like, great, thanks. What's a patch? <laughs> because up until now, I'd been on the whole Microsoft chain. You didn't get patches, you know, for the Microsoft platforms. Um, so I had to learn a whole lot in, in a short amount of time, you know, and um, went on from there to a variety of Postgres-related things up until 2016 um, where I got interested in a different technology, uh, which was Kubernetes. Mm -hmm. Understood. So people may not appreciate what it might have been like in 1997 to use Postgres. Can you bring people back to that uh, era of the dot-com? Okay. Well, first of all, well, right. Yeah. There were no packages anywhere. So you had to compile it. And here's the other thing. There are also no packages for any of the developer tools. Um, so I had to start by compiling almost everything except GCC. 
So like you had to use Yak for the Postgres parser, but first I had to compile Yak, which was written partly in C++ and partly in Fortran. Um, so I had to do both of those. Um, you know, and I mean, the whole thing, it was very much from a from scratch experience for everything. I mean, I it's a little weird now to reflect back on the fact that I used to regularly recompile Linux kernels. Like it was just that was part of the installation process for a new machine or for adding any new hardware was you recompiled the kernel, um, which was, uh, you know, a ridiculously labor intensive way to do anything. Um, but it was necessary because there wasn't any way to get your sound card to work otherwise, right? Or wasn't any way to get your new network card to work otherwise. Um, and so, um, you know, you had to actually build all those things. And then of course, um, Postgres was not in use in production. In It was used in production in very few places at that point. So there were large areas of missing functionality. Um, there wasn't very much documentation for anything. Um, and uh, lots of bugs. The um, um, it actually made it easier to get started as a contributor, right? Because you could pick up a bug to fix anywhere you looked. Um, the, um, but really, it was a process of, hey, compile Postgres. Hey, try to put this workload on it. Okay, have it crash. And then do a bunch of other things again. Um, it really wasn't, I mean, I regard it, it wasn't until the release of 7.2 in 2002, I think, that... Postgres was really stable that you could actually use it for a production shop. Um, and even then it had better be a production shop where you got weekends off because there was a whole bunch of maintenance that was system locking that you had to do. Um, so it wasn't until 7.4 that you could really run Postgres 7 24 seven. So in that era, Postgres was not a real contender for, Adoption by the dot-com companies of the era, I suppose. Oracle was well, pretty dominant? Or... It, I mean, it was because that was true of everything, honestly. Um, I mean, that wasn't Postgres wasn't unique in, for example, requiring downtime maintenance. SQL Server did too at that point. Um, the, um, like, you, well, theoretically, SQL Server was still up and running while you were doing the backup. In practice queries would not complete. And if you ran a query that generated too much workload, it would cause the backup to fail. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't that Postgres was particularly terrible in this regard. It was true of lots of things. Um, and like, for example, one of the, um, one of the things that required taking Postgres offline was compaction, which Postgres calls vacuum. Um, and, um, and as one of my friends who you who worked on MySQL put it, he said, it's not that MySQL doesn't need compaction. It's just that it doesn't have it. The idea with MySQL was you would simply run things until the database got unbearably slow. And then you would back it all up and reload the data on a new database because that was the only way to clean things up. So, I mean, the sort of, you know, Five nines was something that required, you know, infinite amounts of money to achieve at, at that time <laughs> because none of the software was reliable or even intended to run 24-7. You know, and some companies made a lot of money 
by making their software runnable 24 seven. And it was all of this sort of niche industry stuff. Um, like, um, I worked for a while with the cluster guys, which was a, you know, telecom database that sun bought. Um, and, you know, part of cluster's whole start thing was it was a cluster database, but the purpose of the clustering was not as much to distribute the workload. It was so that you never had to take the database down because you could take individual machines down without needing to take the whole database down, you know, and the idea that you would pay $10 million and, you know, an additional hundred thousand dollars in server equipment just to not have six hours of downtime at night was, was how things were. I think a lot of people may not appreciate, I mean, I think a lot of people appreciate how hard it is to uh, even compile uh, Linux from scratch today, but can you walk our audience through just how it is that you came from, uh, you know, fundraising for the San Francisco Opera to having the know-how to compile Linux and Yak with with C plus C and Fortran? What what were the resources available at the time to learn what you had to know to be able to do what you were doing? So, there are a couple of things. I mean, one is you know. I don't want to exaggerate was I've always done stuff with computers. Um, I learned basic when I was like, I don't know, 11 years old, maybe 10 years old. Um, and um, on a VIC 20 from Commodore. Um, and then went from that to the Atari series of home computers. They actually had actual computers once upon a time did not do well in the market, you know, um, uh, but I like them because they had a lot of sound and graphics programming that the apples did not have. Um, the, um, and, um, so, I mean, I was used to writing code and even with the Microsoft stuff, a lot of stuff was done in their own version of C plus plus that we used to call C plus 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 plus, um, <laughs> cause it was, it was, was not really C plus plus, um, and so, you know, I already was used to compiling stuff from that. Um, and one of the differences for like Linux in those days was that every, like, what I was talking about is like recompiling your kernel in order to put in a new sound card. This was something everyone had to do. And as a result, there were a lot of good resources around um, for how to do this. Um, on Usenet, for example, which was still a thing back then, um, uh, the uh, Usenet was this, was, I guess, I don't know, Twitter before there was Twitter. Um, the, um, Forums, and, um, maybe? Yeah. Um, so um, there was a lot of sort of information out there. And then the other thing was, um, because I was in the Bay Area, the Bay Area had a really strong Linux user group. Now, that Linux user group had kind of a weird start. I mean, this is where I learned a lot of things from these people. Kind of a weird start. I joined um, because I had some money I helped create it as an actual organization. But here's the bizarre thing. In order to have a nonprofit organization to act as a steward of the Bay Area Linux user group, it was actually originally created as a chapter of um, Starfleet, the Star Trek national organization. 
<laughs> no kidding. So I am technically a Starfleet officer <laughs> because of that. Well, because we couldn't, we didn't have the resources or know the lawyers or have the money to pay the lawyers to create, you know, a 501c3 or anything. And some of the venues we wanted to use required us to have an organization behind us. So did Starfleet uh, help you promote the uh, the meetups or the? Uh, no, not really. Events? But but they allowed <laughs> us to. We could we could actually reserve the space, and we could get because like one of our venues required insurance. Understood. Um, uh, and actually get insurance via Starfleet. Um, the um, which was really funny because it was not a Trekkie at all. <laughs> I mean, a lot of my fellow lug members were, um, but I wasn't. And um, and it was really funny to, to actually be in that. Um, I mean, later on, it got huge. Um, the um, by 99, the um, so it's actually only in, in what is it like two, two and a half years. Um, the Linux user group was this huge group that rent booked out a restaurant, regulated 150 people a meeting. People literally launched startups at lug meetings. That's how VMware got launched. Um the um um and then broke up in a bunch of crazy politics but but in the meantime i had this huge resource of lots of people who knew a lot more than me people with hardcore cs and ee backgrounds um i so um you know even when it came down to troubleshooting serious hardware problems or figuring out ways to jury rig things um, I, I had that to draw on, right? So like when I was compiling Linux for the first time, I wasn't doing it alone. Totally, totally. Would you bring your desktop PC to the restaurant? Or, I mean, the mm -hmm. restaurants probably happen later, but were uh -huh. people Wait, why loving Why do we needed insurance? <laughs> I guess the fire hazard, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> the, um, so yeah. Yeah, it's it's not so much a thing anymore, but um, one of the things that used to happen in a lot of Linux groups were called install fests. I mean, not really necessary anymore, right? Because I download something, I put it on a USB key, I install it, it just works. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, the difference is amazing over the last 20 years. And But in those days, installing Linux on a new machine, particularly if it was your first time doing it, was like a weekend-long activity because you would have to do that much troubleshooting. You might have to go to the computer store and literally buy new hardware to find hardware that was compatible with any Linux you could get your hands on. Um, and um, and so, you know, this was one of the activities was like we had this. Um, there was a coffee house that was only they only really did business during the week. And so they would let us use it for the whole weekend. Um, and eventually they actually let us stick a. Um, a set of servers in a storage closet there if we paid for their internet. Um, so we paid for their internet and we ended up with a server for the lug. Um, because again, colos there, colos existed, colos were a big thing, but you were talking $300 a month for 2U of rack space. Um, paying for the DSL for this cafe was a lot cheaper. And real estate in the Bay Area has only gone up. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. The um, where where was this cafe? Do you mind sharing the name um, of it or where God. it was located? Like Second and Harrison, I think. 
the building's not even there anymore. But um, I, I, I'm curious about how hard it was to evangelize and grow the Linux user group. Was this something that um, involved a lot of people to help grow? I mean, you had a background in union organizing and fundraising. Uh, you had the backing yeah. of Starfleet. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not, I mean, honestly, really, but... um, I was, I was, yeah, I was much more interested in um, Postgres, you know, even sort of from that point. Um, and because it was the 90s, and we're talking about is this is in the 90s in the Bay Area, so it's the original dot-com boom, um, Linux kind of grew on its own. Um, and a lot more of the promotion was do done. So there was this company called Linux Care that came out of the Bay Area Linux user group. And so um, Linux Care did a lot of the promotion because they attempted to do the same business model as Red Hat did, right? Where they were doing Linux support for money. Um, there were some organizational problems and they ended up not surviving the crash. Um, but the, um, but as a result, those folks were doing a lot of promotion of Linux itself. And then also um, Linux world used to be a community thing, right? Before it became a trade show that people sell iPhone gizmos at and, and then died. Um, it was actually a community conference started by Don and other people as a real promo for Linux and other things. And it just, I mean, it really did grow, right? I mean, it really went like the, the, the lug inside the city of San Francisco went from being this little tiny group to um, 150 people in, in two years, almost on its own. Um, um, and, and mostly what it was, was that that was the period where Linux was replacing expensive proprietary Unix um, on people's web servers. And PHP was taking off, and a whole bunch of other things were were happening um, to promote a Linux stack, what was called at the time the LAMP stack. I, I am well familiar with the LAMP stack. That is mm -hmm. about the point in time when I started getting involved yeah. in software engineering and programming. I, and people make fun of it now, but you don't understand. It was it was revolutionary. Um, and it was particularly good timing because Microsoft had vacuumed up most of the developer tools talent in the industry by aqua hiring out all of the people at Borland, et cetera. And as a result, if you wanted to develop sort of business applications, consumer grade applications, you know, mid nineties, the Microsoft stack kind of owned you. Um, but the problem was Microsoft then towards the late 90s, completely destroyed that stack. They had two different versions of Visual Basic and Complus that were both 100% incompatible with the previous version. They had a web development platform called Visual Interdev that got extremely popular just in time for Microsoft to kill it. Um, you know, and in, you know, this mess, Rasmus and company released this thing called PHP. I mean, first what happens is people start promoting Perl um, but Perl CGI was, you had to have a lot of background knowledge to make it work for you. Um, like I actually learned Perl at the time, et cetera, um, because I wanted to pick up an open source language. And since I was doing a lot of data processing, I could immediately use Perl on the job, even in shops where I wasn't using any other open source anything. 
because I could use Perl to get data from a SQL Server database into um, a in into an Informix database. Yeah, the P in LAMP can stand for several different things, but between Perl, PHP, and Python, would you say that LAMP is generally used to refer to Linux, Apache, MySQL, PHP? Uh, yeah, PHP. The the user base, the developer base in PHP was an or much larger than any of the others. Makes sense. Um, and honestly, still is. Like PHP doesn't capture headlines anymore, but the number of people who I know PHP and at least maintain um, some kind of PHP code is still huge. Um, and I, I mean, I think it's eventually going to get replaced by the various incarnations of JavaScript um, because uh, the JavaScript stack has some advantages over PHP, the primary one of being that very front end, like in the browser code, and then server front end are no longer completely separated, which has a lot of advantages, particularly for smaller dev teams. Um, the, um, um, but, um, but those is a huge amount of PHP and, 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 and on for very good reasons, right? Which was that compared to a lot of the other stacks, you know, in 2001, 2003, like I had the small consulting shop of, you know, depending on the year, one to three people. Um, and, um, we were doing a lot of small to medium sized business applications. And by doing a Postgres PHP stack, which we were doing, you know, and, and we owned the whole stack. This was back when you could do what I really regarded as full stack engineering, which was, you know, we had a piece of hardware that we had built for the customer and we had compiled Linux to put it on that box. Um, and then we put Postgres and PHP and Apache on top of that, um, you know, and then we would put this box in their office and it would run these business applications for them. And we could do really, really fast development with a PHP front end. Um, and if PHP at the time had trouble with things like, say, security, um, we were able to use Postgres's security features to lock that down on the back end. Um, so it worked very, very well for us. Um, uh, in that regard and was a business for a number of years. I think people may not appreciate how recent it was that, yeah, f a full stack meant like a single server instance mm -hmm. where the database and your application code run side by side as maybe two, well, your your application code might be forked a number of times, but <laughs> it's all oh, running on that, one box. Not only that, these machines had tape drives attached to them for the backups <laughs> because DSL was so slow that a cloud backup was just not an option. When, when was the first sort of web framework introduced, like WordPress, for example? Oh, was... we no, we had web frameworks. We had web frameworks from the early days. Mm. Um, it's just none of those early ones are still around, and for good reason. Um, I'm responsible for one of them myself, actually. Um, the um, uh, we you know we we actually created our own PHP-based web framework um, because everyone did. Um, the um, and it was you know the um, we also created our own ORM for it as well. 
to give you an idea of, of the insanity that was considered normal. Um, <laughs> the, um, <laughs> so um, what was the, the idea was actually the entire page structure was in fact represented in the database. Um, and, um, and that allowed us among other things, it allowed for real ease of backups. I could take a database backup and we could actually recreate the entire site at any time based on that backup. The, um, so, um, the, but like in the early days, what do we have early days? Cake actually goes back quite a long ways. The PHP um, framework cake. Yeah. And um, I'm trying to remember some of the others I mean, because most of them died because for good reason. And for a lot of it was they were pre sort of quasi object oriented PHP. And so, um, uh, you know, PHP three, which was when PHP got really big, um, there was no real encapsulation um, of, of any kind. There wasn't really even any good scoping of variables, et cetera. Oh, totally. There um, were global variables everywhere. There were well, and even the variables <laughs> that weren't supposed to be global were often de facto global. Mm -hmm. um, if you found, you know, if you got a crash dump, the um, <laughs> so, um, you know, and so the way that you design PHP frameworks got completely different with PHP five. Um, so, the um. And so everything that had been designed before then pretty much got thrown out as it should have been, you know, I'm not saying, I'm not saying we, we lost, you know, this great nostalgic frameworks in the past. No, no, it was, those all deserve to go. So you yourself were freelancing. Uh, yeah. You had a consultancy in the early 2000s. Yep. Um, did you, did you entertain full-time employment? Did you stay self-employed or consulting? Yeah, no, I stayed self-employed. So for a few reasons, um, and this actually goes back to the nineties even, um, because I actually briefly was employed at one of the first dot-coms, a company called iPro. And that ended with getting locked out of the office being owed three weeks back pay. And so after that, I was just not inclined to sign up for any more dot coms. Um, the because um, particularly at that time, I really needed the money. Like I had to borrow money from my parents in order to make rent. Um, so the um, um, the in in weird transformations, by the way, iPro's core technology, which involved measuring web traffic, is still somewhere embedded in the Alexa platform. Um, the um, uh, but we didn't get anything out of it as the staff. We just got thrown out. Um, wow. The um, and um, so as a result, um, um, and this was after you know fundraising. As a result, um, I didn't you know I decided I was just going to freelance. And so some of my clients were dot coms. Um, the um, um, I did data processing for the four five one, for example, um, the the technical. And, and financial news analysts um, at the time that they started up. Um, the um, so, but I decided I was going to stay independent. Um, the um, and we had an I actually had a number of businesses because like after the crash, one of the things that happened in the crash was that a lot of staff who knew they were about to be laid off without any termination money decided to claim their termination money by um, selling off the equipment that belonged to the startup. 
this is what we called um, uh, five uh, five finger severance at the time. <laughs> and so if you were a member of Craigslist, which at the time was literally a mailing list, these things would get announced. And so a friend of mine and I bought a half rack of early Sun Netra servers. And colo costs were also going into free fall at the time. And so we racked them and started up a business doing affordable hosting for small businesses because we said look you know the big money is disappearing with the crash but people still need websites and if we can make them cheap enough um then we'll still have a business and and we actually ran that business for three four years until the netras gave out um and then the cost of replacing them you know in the meantime we're talking 2004 a lot of competitive hosting is starting to spring up um wasn't worth trying to compete with it and instead we just you know gave people time to move off and shut things down um so it wasn't really tempting to actually go full-time with anybody plus you know 2001 2004 period there weren't a lot of jobs truth truth yeah the um i mean when the crash hit when the crash hit a lot of the funders decided to pull their money out of tech. I mean, it really wasn't, it wasn't like the 2008 crash where, you know, two guys from Palo Alto met in a homeless shelter and got funding and started up a new startup. The, the money dried up, the city emptied out San Francisco. Like, I mean, I think I lost like, you know, a third of my neighbors. Um, wow. It was really very different from 2008 sort of qualitatively. Are there the mention of two guys meeting in a homeless shelter? Who who are you alluding to there? Is it somebody specific? Um, it was this was a news story. Um, I think from Pro Po Bronson's column, um, where it literally was um, two dudes who had ended up in a homeless shelter in Palo Alto. And the first thing in the news is like, wait, there's a homeless shelter in Palo Alto. <laughs> That's news to me too. Yeah. <laughs> they don't just write, they don't just, you know, ship them all out to Sunnyvale. Um, the, um, and um, these guys both had, had been laid off, been unable to make rent, um, been evicted and put all their stuff in a storage space. And um, I, one of them, I, you know, and they had both sort of worked in mobile technology and so they were chatting, talking to people in this Palo Alto homeless shelter and um, came up with an idea for a new startup. And one of them said, look, I'm going to call all my contacts and see if any of them still have any money. Turned out the answer was yes. Um, and so they were out of the shelter in a week with a new startup. Wow. <laughs> Not anybody I knew personally. This is This was in one of the the um one of the silicon valley you know tabloids totally totally i thought you might have been alluding to sergey brin and larry page who met in graduate school housing <laughs> which yeah, no, i wouldn't no, 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 call no. that homeless but no, no that was at stanford it's not homeless at all <laughs> even Certainly even not. if graduate yeah. students dress like homeless people they're not actually homeless <laughs> so you you've consulted for a number of super high pro, I would say super high yeah. profile clients yeah. um, specifically with regards to Postgres. Mm -hmm. um, we don't need to name names here, but I think our audience would be fascinated by some of the types of problems that 
super high scale, uh, super uh, high risk uh, businesses mm -hmm. deal with in terms of their databases. Uh, do you mind sharing any war stories? Yeah, so there are, I mean, the thing is, there are some that I am specifically allowed to talk about, right? Because one of the things we did as a company, by the way, anybody who's listening who's starting your own consulting company, you know, putting, offering the client, you know, free two hours or four hours of consulting in exchange for being able to publicly use their story is often a worthwhile trade, particularly when you're starting out and trying to get clients and trying to get references. Um, and particularly if you work on back-end infrastructure where your clients are often reluctant to talk about it. Um, so like one of the ones that we're completely allowed to talk about was Instagram. Um, so Instagram went huge overnight and they were cutting a lot of new territory in two respects. First of all, they were on AWS, which was very new at the time um, and super duper unreliable. Um, but they really didn't want to own hardware and the VCs funding them didn't want them to own hardware. And so they were very devoted to the AWS platform. Plus it allowed them to, even if the individual nodes were really unreliable, it allowed them to scale in a way that they couldn't have buying new hardware or even renting new hardware from Rackspace. Um, and um, because they just kept growing. And then one of the other things that was going on there on their platform is um, there weren't really workable distributed databases at the time. Um, and so what we were helping them do with a lot, a lot of the work being done by the Instagram engineering team also, but what we were helping them do was basically turn Postgres into a de facto distributed database, special purpose distributed database. Um, and so that included things like, um, like, for example, um, they wanted to have an ID system in which the IDs were non-sequential, but each bit-shifted portion of the ID told them something about that user or that photo that allowed you, for example, to locate it in the cluster without querying a whole bunch of servers. Um, and, um, and they wanted to do this as compactly as possible. So um, our team ended up working with them to actually create a new data type for Postgres, which is one of those things that Postgres allows you to do relatively easily compared to other databases. Um, that was this special, I think we ended up with a 28-bit um, number that had all of this bit-shifted information in it. Um, and then when they... hextupled, 16xed their number of users, we had to redesign that data type and add another two bits to it, but make it backwards compatible. Um, so that's your sort of crazy high end. And then, of course, the way that this was working, the sort of ad hoc distributed database, right, was we had this giant um, reference cluster that had where all of the blocks were located, and then the individual blocks were distributed out across all the various servers, each one running its own separate copy of Postgres. Um, the, um, this was a pattern that a lot of people used often with using um, uh, memcached as, as their hash map. So they would put the hash map in memcached, and then they would use that hash map to figure out where 
the data was on the various MySQL or PostgreSQL servers. Facebook did the same thing with MySQL when they started out. Um, the, um, um, trying to remember who else we were allowed to reference. Um, the rest of it, I mean, honestly, so that was, those were the exciting things, right? That was the exciting things. Um, a lot of the bread and butter of being a database consultant was setting up a, setting up uh, backup redundancy stuff, um, setting up replication, um, uh, for clients, um, working on data migrations, um, which was a big issue because for all the systems that anybody came up with through, you know, rails or anything else, fully automated data migrations pretty much have never worked in a production application. Every time you're going to do data migration, that's going to be significant. That's going to involve changing a lot of how the data is represented. It's ended up being a human effort because you need to do it in a way that doesn't take the application down. And, and by taking it down, it doesn't have to actually be shut off. It just has to be so slow it doesn't respond. So it doesn't take the application down. It doesn't break anybody's stuff. People can address the old and the new data model, you know, at the same time, depending on what their record is on. Um, I've never seen a fully automated system that could take care of that simply because the permutations of what the user can have in their application and in their database are just too complex. Um, and the funny thing is things like the new document databases like MongoDB were supposed to make this a thing of the past. Do you know what's a growth industry for MongoDB? Migration. Data migration consultant. <laughs> <laughs> because it turns out that taking something from one document structure across a billion documents um, is not that different from taking it from one table structure to another across a billion rows in terms of what's required to maintain uptime while you do that. I would I would love to cover Mongo uh, and hear your take on its ascendancy uh, in terms of market share. One of the one of the things I recall about Mongo's history is when they announced their um, connector of some type, mm -hmm. and it was leaked that the Mongo connector for being able to query uh, other yeah. databases like relational ones was actually under the covers Postgres foreign data wrappers. Yes. Well, <laughs> because we had a Mongo foreign data wrapper and it worked well. Mm -hmm. And um, the um, and they needed something that allowed them to talk to tools that expected a relational database or a spreadsheet on the back end. Mm -hmm. um, and Postgres could already do that. And Postgres could talk to Mongo um, quickly and, and regardless of what document structure you were using. Um, I mean, mind you. That was also kind of a community disaster for Mongo um, because this was something that MongoDB, the company, did. And the thing is, there had already been an ecosystem of consultants who had particular Mongo native tools to do this. And so MongoDB, the company, in the process of releasing this tool with Postgres under the hood, um, basically killed a bunch of these consultants' business models. Um, and some of these consultants had been quite active MongoDB promoters up until then. Um, so it's always something you have to look out for whenever you're sort of expanding, you know, your sort of universe is, is when you're expanding the capabilities of your project or product, are you, are you stealing somebody's lunch? Right. Um, 
uh, something that Docker Inc. could have stood to have learned a lesson from. Yeah. Um. <laughs> I, I was going to say, I, I don't know if the executives at Mongo feel much regret about doing so. Um, yeah. But the executives at Docker might have some regret about not doing so. <laughs> I don't know which specific products they could have uh, killed. Well, no, no, no. Docker ecosystem. did that continuously through the lifespan of Docker Inc. Mm -hmm. They were constantly um, releasing things that eliminated one of their partner's business models. Mm -hmm. um, and, and sometimes in very bad ways um, because, I mean, for example, um, there was a company called Cluster HQ that had a suite of products that actually made... So one of Docker's weaknesses was that independent of Kubernetes, if we're using Docker without Kubernetes, it really didn't have a storage story. There was no organized management of storage for your containers running Docker if you were running Docker or Docker Swarm. So Cluster HQ, starting in the early days, starting pre-Docker 1.0, came up with... Um, a set of tools that allowed you to have cloud storage for Docker by allowing it to integrate with Postgres or integrate with um, the the mirroring thing for Linux or a bunch of other things um, uh, that actually worked. Um, I'm not remembering. Linux actually is built into a kernel, the kernel something that allows you to mirror file systems between servers. Mm. Um, and I always forget what the name of this is. Uh, it's been around forever. Anyway, <laughs> um, the um, and um, and so then Docker acquired a pre-release storage startup and announced that this was going to be the new storage thing for Docker and Docker Swarm. This caused Cluster HQ's VCs to cut off their funding, and they folded and they went out of business. In the meantime, Docker's new storage product was never released. So they killed the main partner that was providing storage for Docker, while at the same time never releasing a replacement product. I this is like, yeah. it is an object lesson in things you don't want to do when you are running, you know, a software company. I know, I know your attention is mostly focused on Postgres, but I'm curious to hear your take on what Mongo did right to uh, reach where they're where they are today. Obviously, one of them being killing uh, <laughs> killing competitors. Not competitors. I don't know if they ever did anything to kill competitors. I mean, really. I mean the data um, connector. Data, but I mean the data connector thing is a pretty minor thing, as yeah. far as MongoDB overall is concerned. Sure, sure. Um, the um, so I mean the first thing they did right was they have always had great marketing. Like always, 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 um, you know, from day one, when, when it was early stages, first round of funding, they hired a bunch of junior sort of front end web devs who were out of work. Um, and there were a lot of them out of work at the time, um, trained them up on how to interact with MongoDB and write web code and sent them out to like every meetup in the country to talk up MongoDB. Um, I mean, uh, that also involved a lot of marketing that I consider not entirely honest. Um, they did a lot of promoting of features that didn't exist. Um, the, um, um, but it was very, very successful for them. Um, and particularly 
Um, I mean, one of the things that they didn't control is their timing was also very good. Um, the um, um, and you know, in terms of this was happening at a time when the relational database world was shrinking. Um, so again, graybeard time. Um, turn the clock back to the late 90s. There were 30 or 40 different SQL databases and non-SQL relational databases, which were a thing at the time, um, on the market uh, with significant customer bases. Um, the... Um, so, I mean, it used to be big, but you turn the clock forward to like 2006, 2007, we're down to a handful, five or six. And so everybody who is, for some reason, not satisfied with one of those was looking around for something else. And particularly, here's one of the other things that had happened. With the acquisition, with their first their venture funding, you know, and their new management, followed by the acquisition of Sun, followed by the acquisition of Oracle by Oracle, MySQL was going up the stack towards enterprise stuff. Well, that left this huge vacuum of developers who wanted a database that didn't tell them what to do up for grabs, right? It's what I call the low end of the database market. Low end from perspective of database capabilities, right? Because every time you add a new feature to a database, you also make it more complicated. Um, and so a lot of non-relational databases tried to step into this at the same time. And out of those, um, Mongo did the best overall job, mostly mm -hmm. from a business perspective, right? Like you can argue that a lot of these others like Couch, um, React was technically worlds better than Mongo, but they didn't have the business side of it together enough, right? They didn't have the right marketing. They didn't have um, the right promotion. They didn't have the right partnerships. Um, so um, the, and that's why MongoDB is still a big company. And React is a pure freeware open source product project for a company that doesn't exist anymore. Totally, totally. Yeah, it would be remiss not to mention some of the other databases that or database services, maybe you could say that are around this era, like um, Firebase was similarly yeah. competing directly with Mongo, uh, if you, then going on to get acquired by Google and Google Cloud. Um, Cassandra being another yeah. NoSQL database. Now, see, but, but Cassandra is still around. Totally, totally. Right? But Cassandra has a particular niche, and that niche is very high end. Mm -hmm. um, so it was never really in the same market as Mongo. Mm hmm Right. Because like, I don't know, maybe they can do it now, but certainly even a couple of years ago, the idea of handling 10,000 simultaneous transactions in Mongo, not a thing. Right. Um, on the other hand, you know, it for many years, it was considered part of your acquisition cost for putting Cassandra into your enterprise was hiring a full time Cassandra engineer. Because that was what it took to actually run it in production. Um, so, the um, so I mean, effectively, both databases, but completely different ends of the database market. 
Um, so, I mean, I actually like what happened overall because we went through this period where the only databases were relational databases. And relational databases solve a lot of problems. I mean, I think right now they're actually a little underestimated, but we're getting back to people understanding the value of them. But they don't solve all problems. And it was just, it was the success of Oracle and Informix and Microsoft and that sort of thing that kind of buried all the non-relational databases for a number of years. And now people have brought them back. And for some things like, for example, take, you know, for example, for things that are really not suitable for relational databases, one of the projects that I'm involved with is etcd, right? So the, the shared consensus store that backs Kubernetes and a number of other services. Um, I can't even imagine doing etcd as a relational database. I mean, you technically could, but it adds like this huge extra problem set to it that would be very, very hard to solve. Um, now, the CockroachDB folks are solving that, but I will point out that it took them, I don't know, six, seven years after etcd was already in production to get there. Um, and even so, I don't think CockroachDB is not actually a relational database under the hood. It's a non-relational database with a very, very good relational mapping layer on top of it, as I understand it from the architecture papers. Yeah, I my familiarity with CockroachDB is not not high. Um, in my roles, I've never never explored it as an option. Yeah. Anyway, I mean, we got we got a lot of good out of it because it started with you know because the scene in like two thousand six, two thousand seven, there was very little innovation going on in the database world. And now there's a whole ton of innovation. People are, are doing new things. That, that we would be uh, mistaken not to talk about some of the newer things that have come to Postgres in the last few years. Yeah. Uh, foreign data wrappers being one, uh, mm -hmm. JSON, JSONB, uh, dealing with non-relational data mm -hmm. in, in data types like JSONB. Uh, yeah. Another... Yeah. I, I thought the JSON was really important, um, and it was not JSON, but we were looking at a different structure. We've been talking about it for a while. Those of us who actually worked heavily with web devs, um, uh, which I did because at that point it was Postgres experts, and we were having all of our clientele in Silicon Valley. And so we were getting requests for these things. Um, and then that was where, honestly, MongoDB really did us a favor. Because MongoDB came on the scene, they took off, they got a ton of press. And that meant that some of us were able to go to the Postgres, um, the Postgres development committee called Hackers and say, look, this is clearly something that people want. And we are capable of creating new data types, right? It's what Postgres is, one of the things Postgres is good for. And at the same time, we had... We have Postgres still has this crew in Russia, in Moscow, who are data type experts. It's what they do. They came out of the University of Moscow. Um, they are amazing at creating data types and index types and stuff. And so um, we were able to get a lot of funding for both the parts of it on this end, a lot of work done by Andrew, some work done by me. And then um, we and they got funding for the work done in Moscow in order to create an actual JSON data type that was indexable was the important thing, right? Is that you had to be able to do 
jQuery style searches on it and have those use an index um, because otherwise it had limited utility. Um, and, um, you know, you can find a statement by me saying that, you know, I felt this was the most important feature proposed for Postgres at the time. And I still think it was right. I think it made as much, almost as much of a difference for Postgres as things like adding geodata back in 2001 did. Um, it, it made, you know, I won't say it let Postgres, you know, steal workload back from Mongo or anything else. But what it did do was it allowed people who were already using Postgres to continue using it for those sorts of tasks. Totally. Yeah, I I lived that myself. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, having used Postgres at a number of employers, totally mm -hmm. watched that firsthand. Uh, one of the other newer, relatively newer features that's pretty interesting about Postgres is as opposed to binary replication, having logical rep uh, replication. Yes. Yeah. And having a little bit more visibility into replication logs. Uh, I know there's another project, open source project uh, driven at Red Hat, Debezium, uh, that uh, uh, for lack of uh, more full description, uh, takes uh, my uh, relational database replication logs and publishes them to Kafka for consumption. Uh, yeah. Or I think it supports other uh, producers as well. Um, we actually just recorded an episode with uh, uh, open source maintainer of a MySQL uh, competitor of Debezium. But uh, w for audience members that are unaware or unfamiliar with logical replication in Postgres, do you mind giving a, a brief summary? So, yeah, I mean, so I mean, this is actually true of many databases. MySQL also has logical and binary options, although they don't necessarily call them that. Um, so for any, for any relational, and actually this is also true for non-relational like document databases, right? Is you can replicate the database at two levels. You can replicate it at the physical level where you're replicating blocks of data. You're replicating, um, I, you know, this 8k data page. Um, and you can replicate it at the logical level where you're replicating a row of a table or a document in the case of a document database. And there's trade-offs both ways, right? The um, disadvantage to binary replication is um, you don't have a lot of discretion in terms of what you replicate. You're generally in a position of needing to replicate, make an additional copy of the entire database. Um, in the case of Postgres, you're even limited to only being able to do writes on one node at a time. Um, because the replication stream has to be single direction. With logical replication, because you're replicating rows, you can actually insert, first of all, you can replicate only part of the database. Like you'll replicate a single table. You can replicate a single document collection in a document database. Um, and you could also add handlers of some kind in order to treat that data differently. So for example, rather than replicating a row from a Postgres database to another Postgres database, you could replicate the row, turn it into a message, put it into Kafka. Um, the, um, and that has a tremendous advantage over things like triggers in Postgres because it requires less overhead and it eliminates the chance that you'll miss one because there's a lot of 
machinery backing replication to make sure that everything gets delivered. Um, the, um, the disadvantage to logical replication is it's interventionist into your database data structure. So with physical replication, what we call binary replication, the person administering the replication doesn't even have to talk to the people who are administering the actual contents of the database because it happens on completely different layers. And the person in charge of the binary replication doesn't care except in terms of volume of bytes. Um, with logical replication, you have to care, right? Because if you're replicating rows of tables, what if somebody creates a new table? Well, now you have to decide if the table's going to be part of replication or not. You have to manually or have a, an administrative script that adds that table, um, you know, and that sort of thing. Um, same thing with documents, right? You add a new document collection. Do, does that become part of replication? Does it not become part of replication? If you split the document collection in half, what happens to the replication to it? You know, these sorts of things. Um, so, um, but one of the other things that you can technically do with logical replication is that you can even make it not single source anymore. So if you have a way to handle conflicts on the wire, then you can accept writes in multiple locations. And there are a number of different strategies to do that, depending on what use case you're going for, right? Are you, like, for example, I was um, worked with the Citus data crew for quite a while. Uh, I should mention that we've had Craig Kirsten's on the show okay. previous. Yeah. Yeah. And um, with Citus data, the goal here was to split up and distribute your data in order to distribute the query workload across as many machines as possible, primarily for data analytics, um, because um, uh, because data analytics could involve answering questions that require scanning 10 billion rows, which you don't want to do on a single machine if you can avoid it. Um, the... Um, um, but, for example, um, this company called Second Quadrant created the system called BDR, which stands for bidirectional replication. Um, they created it initially to solve problems for, um, it was either Symantec or Norton, one of the two, um, who had geo-distributed databases, right? So they've got a database in a data center in London and a database in a data center in Singapore and a database in a data center um, in North Carolina. And they want people who are writing data to be able to write to their local data center, but they want it all to be consistent across all the data centers at some time delay. Um, and they want the system to handle things where if somebody makes an update in London and somebody makes an update in North Carolina and those two updates duplicate each other, something intelligent happens to it. Um, this is where we get into, uh, what is it called, eventual consistency? which is one of those big lies of current database um, development because there is no eventual consistency. There is only inconsistency. <laughs> and what, what people say when they call eventual consistency, what they really mean is limited inconsistency. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, I feel like we we're we're missing out on talking about a great deal more topics that I had hoped we'd have an opportunity to talk about. For example, uh, the, the kind of the future for software engineering careers and databases, and uh, in the here and now with coronavirus, everybody working remotely, 
you have a great deal of experience working yeah. remotely. Um, yeah. Well, that, I mean, that's the thing. Cause that was the other thing is when I went freelance back in 1998, that was the last time I worked out of anybody else's office. Like even when I was working for sun, I was only in the office one day a week. Um, and, and it's been interesting seeing people adjusting to working remotely because I would have a lot of trouble adjusting the other way. Um, now, mind you, I did have an office in San Francisco for a number of years, mostly because my apartment was tiny. And there were quite a number of years where office space in San Francisco outside of downtown was actually cheaper than apartment space. Um, so I could get a 400 square foot office for half of what it would have cost me to get, you know, 400 square feet of, of split apartment. Mm -hmm. um, the, um, and so I had that 400 square foot office. Um, the, um, but having, but working out of your own office is kind of different from working out of somebody else's office. You know, I did actually get up and get dressed and go to the office in the morning, but I still wasn't sharing space. Yeah, I think I think some people might be thriving under their imposed work from home situations yeah. right now who have never worked remotely uh, full time like you have. Yeah. Uh, but on the other hand, a lot of people are, you know, parents who are not uh, are not living this freedom of, uh, a new, you know, using a, a spare bedroom as an office that they previously weren't They're They're in prison along with oh. a four year old. <laughs> <laughs> and, and even if you don't have kids, a bunch of my colleagues are in like New York City or something. Mm -hmm. And so they've got like two of them uh, working, both working from home um, out of an apartment that is the size of my current living room in Portland. Totally. Um, so, yeah, no, and I, I know what that was like because like my first two years freelancing, I was working out of our postage stamp style size San Francisco apartment and it was not fun. Totally. You know, which is why as soon as I had money going in, I talked to, I had a bunch of nonprofit clients at the time because of my fundraising background. One of my nonprofits um, had extra space because they'd shrunk and I got them to rent me part of their office so that I could get out of the house. Um, the, um, yeah, so there's that. And I mean, the big thing I would say in terms of career advice is, Get used to learning new things because, you know, even if we get the new Great Depression with COVID and that sort of thing, which we very well might get, certainly the numbers are not optimistic. That doesn't mean the pace of software development as an industry is going to slow down. Right? Like my full-time job right now is Kubernetes, something that literally did not exist six years ago. Um, and someday Kubernetes will be replaced. Like Kubernetes is awesome. I use it for all kinds of things. Other people use it for all kinds of things, but nothing lasts forever. Um, particularly in the world of, of infrastructure software, you know, cause among other things, the hardware changes and then the infrastructure software on top of it needs to change. Um, so, so at some point I will need to learn another completely new platform. Um, and, and you just have to get used to that and you have to figure out what makes it possible for you to learn on the job or off the job or whatever so that you can keep advancing your stuff. Totally. 
I I can appreciate that. Albeit, I am much more your junior. <laughs> I can appreciate what you're yeah. what you're but saying you see, right here, now. Let's take it back to school, right? This is where I find that my, despite getting my degree in fine art, my liberal arts education at Pitzer, in a lot of ways, was more valuable than a CS degree would have been. Because what I actually learned at Pitzer was how to learn new stuff, um, which I have then done continuously. The um, so, you know, I would almost say, except that companies, particularly if you're just out of college, companies are getting to be real, really discriminatory about wanting CS degrees. Mm -hmm. But even if you can get your CS degree at a liberal arts college and you can afford that, obviously they tend to be fairly expensive. Um, do that because the part of the liberal arts curriculum that is here's how to learn is actually more important than anything you're going to learn in your CS classes. I've got to plug a little bit of advice of my own, which yeah. is besides staying up on things by listening to podcasts, I would actually urge audience members to consider doing their own podcast and having conversations like the one we've just had with people like Josh who've got decades of literally of experience on all of these topics. Um, and yeah, listen to Josh, listen to people <laughs> like Josh. Uh, there's a lot of sage wisdom there. Um, Josh, I want to thank you for coming on. We've, we've run well over time, yeah. <laughs> but well, I thank you very thank much. You. It's been a lot of fun. Totally. The feelings mutual. For more, visit us on iTunes or our website at theaccidentalengineer.com.